You're listening to the Catholic Fragments Podcast, where we explore the treasures of Catholicism, the fullness of truth revealed in Jesus Christ and His Church. I'm your host, Dr. Donald Wallenfang, and I invite you to join me in gathering up the fragments of the truth that sets us free. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. Our exhortation was not from delusion or impure motives, nor did it work through deception. But as we were judged worthy by God to be entrusted with the gospel, that is how we speak, not as trying to please human beings, but rather God who judges our hearts. Nor indeed did we ever appear with flattering speech, as you know, or with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek praise from human beings, either from you or from others, although we were able to impose our weight as apostles of Christ. Rather, we were gentle among you, as a nursing mother cares for her children, With such affection for you, we were determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very selves as well. So dearly beloved had you become to us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Catholic Fragments Podcast. I'm Dr. Donald Wallenfang, and what a pleasure it is to introduce another new theme into this podcast lineup. The Art of Autobiography and Anamnesis. When it comes to sharing the Gospel of Jesus, personal testimony is undoubtedly a key component. Being able to narrate how your life was claimed, changed, and rearranged by Christ authenticates your witness and provokes your listeners as to how their lives might undergo further conversion by the transformative power of God's amazing grace. In this episode, we will reflect on the role of autobiography within Christian evangelization, as well as the central role of liturgical anamnesis within ongoing conversion to Christ. So let's dive in. First of all, these two words, autobiography and anamnesis. What are their roots? What do they mean? How do they go together? First, autobiography from three Greek words, autos, bios, and grapho. Autos, oneself, is the self or oneself. Bios, life, one of the Greek words for life, along with another, zoe, for example. And then grapho, to write. So autobiography means writing about one's life. 
sharing about the experience of being a self in this world and existing, but especially related to Christian evangelization, autobiography seeks to point to Christ. Like St. Augustine in his classic work, The Confessions. This was a sui generis, a kind of one-of-a-kind writing of St. Augustine in the, um, around the year 400. And St. Augustine wants to share how Jesus has worked in his life, transformed his heart, and claimed him for his kingdom and to be a witness for the rest of his life. And he becomes a saint because of God's grace at work in his life. This autobiography really takes its model in the history of Christianity, especially from St. Augustine's Confessions. But even we can go back to Scripture and see all the testimony of the witnesses to Christ, how he changed their lives personally. The second word, anamnesis. We think of anamnesis within the liturgy within the Eucharistic prayer. It comes from the Greek roots, these two roots, the prefix ana, meaning again or anew, and mimneskein in Greek, which has to do with the mind, but being reminded. So it's really about a renewal of the mind, like St. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, but especially within the liturgical context, it's bringing to mind bringing present to mind once again for the sake of that metanoia, the conversion of mind and heart, the life of Jesus, the memorial of his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, what is called the Paschal Mystery of Jesus. Anamnesis is the opposite of amnesia, which would mean to forget, to lose one's mind in a sense. So we don't fall into a kind of existential anamnesia because we carry out the anamnesis within the context of liturgy. In the Eastern Rite liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, for example, the anamnesis starts out in the Greek, this part of the Eucharistic prayer, memnemenoi toinun tes soteriu, Tautes, entoles, kaipanton, ton huper, hemon, gegenemenon. So, in English, remembering, therefore, this command of the Savior that all came to pass for our sake. And it goes on. The cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the enthronement at the right hand of the Father, and the second glorious coming, Thine own of thine own we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all. That's the part of the Eucharistic prayer called the anamnesis. And in the, in the Latin rites, first of all in the Latin, unde et memores domine nos servi tui, sed et plebs tua sancta, eustem Christi filii tui domini nostri tam beate passionis. And it goes on. Wherefore, O Lord, we thy servants, as also thy holy people, calling to mind, anamnesis, memoria, calling to mind, remembering, making present once again through the sacramental offering, the real presence of Christ to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
calling to mind the blessed passion of the same Christ, thy Son, our Lord, and also his resurrection from the dead, his glorious ascension into heaven, do offer unto thy most excellent majesty of thine own gifts, bestowed upon us a pure host, a holy host, an unspotted host, the holy bread of eternal life, and the chalice of everlasting salvation. So that's the Latin rite version of the memoria, or the anamnesis, we would say in Greek, from the Greek roots. So autobiography and anamnesis, these two go together within the course of Christian evangelization. It's telling the story of Christ, but also intersecting with the story of myself. How has Jesus changed my life radically, irrevocably, for the better, in a life-giving and saving way? This is what we want to share with our hearers when we are involved in evangelization. So to this end, for this purpose, I ended up writing a book I published in 2021, right after the COVID-19 pandemic, kind of at the tail end of it. The book is called I, God, subtitled A Hidden and Fragmentary Autobiography. And they say in the preface of the book, this book is not so much about me as it is about how Jesus has been at work in my life over all the years of my life, all the way up until my early 40s. So quite a few years for God to be at work. And I entitled it, I, God, as you can probably tell, a kind of spin-off of Apple computers talking about iMac and iPro and iPod, iPhone, iEverything. Or like in some tollways, like in the state of Illinois, there's there's iPass and, and things. And everything beginning with this letter I, I fill in the blank. As if the whole world revolves around the I, revolves around the self. And this is the common mistake in this life that we assume the whole universe orbits around me, myself, and I. And so I entitled the book I, God to show the conversion of I, God within myself over the course of my life. A conversion, I can assure you, continues to this day as I'm speaking in this podcast episode. But I wrote the book over the course of nine years And my intention was to write little fragments or feature these vignettes of my life, both in small portions of text and also photographs. And that's what the book is. It's over 100 photographs of of people, including myself. Yes, over the course of my life. For the sake of telling the story of how Jesus changed my life all the way to the present. I finished the book during the COVID-19 pandemic. The preface itself is dated September 24th, 2020. So the year 2020 and March of 2020, especially in the United States where everything changed for the next two years uh, with wearing facial masks and social distancing, isolation, the fear of death, Uh, And many 
of us did die um, through these two years because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I ended up contracting the virus twice myself uh, over the space of uh, two years, and it was a tough go. I praise God that that I'm still alive to tell about it. And my whole family contracted the virus in November of 2020. Uh, So right after I was finishing up this book, um, but I want to share some of the fragments from this book with you. Because the intention of the book is this autobiographical anamnesis, an active gathering of the fragments of my life in order to piece together a meaningful mosaic of memories all together for the sake of pointing to Christ. Like St. John the Baptist This joy of mine has been made complete. He must increase, I must decrease. That's the point. The conversion, the inversion of I-God. So I'd like to share with you four different fragments from this book that themselves each tell a story and even all together tell a story, even though the book is made up of hundreds of these fragments. And I'll put a link in the description, of course, to this book if you're interested to check it out more. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you got a chance to read any of it. But first, let me share a fragment from the preface, the third paragraph, which gets at the subtitle of the book, A Hidden and Fragmentary Autobiography. As the subtitle of the book suggests, it is a hidden and fragmentary autobiography. This, I feel, is the only way I can tell my story and do some semblance of justice to all that will remain unsaid and even unremembered for now. Our lives are saturated phenomena, to be sure. Much more abides on the hindsight of memory than those few fragments that come to the surface. Yet somehow those few fragments that come to the surface serve to recapitulate and witness to the whole constellation of life's meaning that is too wide to tell. The fragments of my life that I share herein are true. This is the way my life has unfolded, and I wish to tell it like it is. I do not want to obstruct the narrative by some pretentious academic discourse or pseudo-hagiography. I do not want my story to be told as a performance, but rather I simply want to put it on display in all of its sincere duplicity that yearns to undergo a metamorphosis towards sincere sincerity. I tell my story with full knowledge that it is not over. The conversion and inversion of I-God is still underway, and I would like to hope that the apogee, the high point, lingers around the eschatological corner of an untold rendezvous across an unexpected horizon of surprise and wonder. Fragments are powerful. Catholic Swiss theologian of the 20th century, Hans Urs von Balthasar, has this phrase in German, das Ganze im Fragment, the whole in the fragment, the whole revealed in the fragment. So even calling to mind one fragment of life 
in itself can testify to a greater whole of which it is a part. This is one of the greatest crises of our era, fragmentation. And we need to work to gather up the fragments of our lives to overcome them, to overcome fragmentation. Gerard Manley Hopkins talks about inscape and instress. And inscape is the individually distinctive inner structure or nature of a thing, the essence of a natural object, whether it be a snowflake or a walnut or something, a seed, which being perceived through the moment of illumination, a kind of revelatory epiphany, reveals the unity of all creation. It's where every object has an essence that can be perceived. This essence points to God's design of it and the unified design of the creation. So inscape in, in, the, in the, the mind of Gerard Manley Hopkins means where the universe is revealed in the small part of the universe. Again, the seed, the child, the snowflake, the flower, uh, all these various things that communicate order, design, ingenuity, and they point as signs to the singular real reality that is God. We must gather up the fragments in which the whole is testified to in the part. So now, just a few fragments from my own life with some brief commentary on these. The very first fragment of I, God, this book, starts off with a conflict. And even before that, I quote 20th century Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas from a 1986 interview who said that memories risk being known rather than remembered. There's a difference in claiming to know something, and if I claim to know something, maybe I don't see the need to remember it because it's always there. But to remember something means to actively retrieve it, this what would be called a hermeneutics or a art of interpretation involving retrieval, involving a resourcing, a mining, what is in danger of being forgotten. And as I write in another book, one of the symptoms of this crisis of fragmentation in our era is that we have forgotten that we have forgotten. We have forgotten that we have forgotten the need to gather up the fragments. The first fragment of the book, page one, is entitled In the Ring. It's all about life and uh, how conflict is unavoidable, but yet how we must lean into the theodrama. Again, to quote a concept of Hans-Urs von Balthasar, his theology, a theodramatics of life, rather than reducing everything to merely an ego drama of the self. So when conversion takes place by the grace of God, we move from an ego drama to a theodrama. And this is key. So let me narrate this first fragment with you. I hit him in the face, right fist to left cheek, a perfect landing. All of the rage inside channeled through my shoulder, arm and fist, fight or flight. There was no way I was going to let a 10-year-old be victorious over me. 
Fight it was, and my defining punch sent him flailing to the ground. So I'll stop there. I, the fragment goes on, but for the sake of time, I'll just comment on the beginning of this fragment, the fragment of the fragment, which is okay. So I hit him in the face. This, I would say, is what I do not want to define my life. This act, this moment, this sin, this act of self-preservation against the other, this canceling out the other by striking him in his naked, vulnerable face. It's one of the quintessential acts of hatred, of violence. It's paradigmatic. So I begin with the paradigmatic depiction of sin in my heart. I hit him in the face. And if you're familiar at all with the work of Emmanuel Levinas, who I just quoted, the face is a real big deal in his work. And he does a phenomenology of the face, the nakedness of the face, the call of the other revealed in the nakedness and vulnerability of the face of the other that cries out to me, do not hit me, do not kill me, but instead be responsible for me. So I begin the book with a place of darkness, a place that is very low, a low point in my life. Yes, when I was a child, when I was around 12 years old, um, I got into this fight in the middle of a football game in the neighbor's yard. And, and then I talk about my uh, remorse, my regret for having done that right after it happened. But I kicked the book off with this scene because... Uh, in the end, I want this scene to be revised. I want it to be converted. And so throughout the book, you'll see that conversion taking place. Then the second fragment I want to share with you, entitled Everybody's Everything. Growing up, there was a store in town called Everybody's Everything. It sold and rented out costumes. Perhaps it could be said that it symbolically empowered people to be who they were not. Masquerade. At the end of first grade, there was an awards ceremony when all of the parents came to school and watched as their children received various awards from the first grade teacher, Miss Mulheron. I remember anxiously watching all the kids in my class receive their awards for various traits they exhibited throughout the year. Was I going to receive an award? Finally, at the very end, my name was called Donald Wallenfang, most outstanding boy in all areas. This was only the beginning. And right under this textual fragment, I have a visual one, a photograph of me probably around the age of four in a Superman outfit. Um, and so again, I begin with a very egocentric, um, narrative here that I received this award in first grade and it's all true most outstanding boys in all areas received this award I was proud and my parents are proud I still have a framed um, the the award framed in what I call my one of my special boxes where I have all these keepsakes and I have it to this day but it's setting up again a, a conversion of this egocentric way of life which has always haunted me uh, throughout my life. The third fragment I'd like to share 
called the Heart Menders. So the Heart Menders was the name of a soccer team I played on around the age of, of um, yeah, 10. And it was sponsored by local heart surgeons. But that word Heart Mender has such a profound meaning for me to this day because, again, it speaks of the conversion my heart had to undergo over time. And in this fragment, I won't read it for the sake of time, but I share about uh, some scenes from playing soccer and I got an award there too, Most Improved Player, the George Herbert Walker Award, and um, have that, I kept that to this day too, and it was given in the year 1989, so I would have been 11 years old. But I wore a jersey called the, uh, of the team the Heartmenders, even at that age, and it was foreshadowing all that would go on in my life following that. The last fragment I want to share is entitled Water. In this one, I would like to read in full and then round out this podcast episode. So as you might suspect, with the fragment entitled Water, it relates to the sacraments, it relates to baptism, it relates to the great symbol of water as both a symbol of life and death. Water makes up most of our bodies. We need it to survive, but also we could drown being engulfed in water. So here it is. Growing up in the Catholic Church and attending Catholic school until I graduated, my brother and I became altar servers. I saw serving as a privilege and I looked forward to it whenever it was our turn. There were older kids at my church who I looked up to and one of them was named Francisco Turner. Fran was an all-American kind of kid. He was a straight-A student, tall, handsome, and a star athlete. He had a smile that ran all the way from the east to the west and everyone loved him. He and his brother, Danielle, were altar servers at my church and I wanted to be just like Fran when I got older. Around the fifth grade, my brother and I were called to serve at the confirmation liturgy with Bishop Donovan. He was an older bishop whose eyes sagged like those of a St. Bernard, emanating an ancient wisdom and authority. Right after the bishop anointed the confirmandi with the sacred chrism, it was time for him to wash his hands. My brother brought the basin, and I brought the pitcher of water. A lemon also was used in the ritual hand-washing in order to rinse the oil thoroughly from the bishop's hands. Finally, it came time for me to pour the water over his hands to complete the ritual washing. I was trying to be careful not to overdo the water, so I poured what I thought to be just the right amount over his sacred hands. Looking me in the eyes with his eyes, which seemed to hold the chambers of eternity, he said, Don't be stingy. I proceeded to pour the rest of the water over his hands, emptying the vessel. Ah, so this fragment, it's so powerful. It's giving me kind of chills just reading it and thinking about my life and even things going on lately. (laughs) Things I have to deal with, uh, like uh, car collision repair or various other conflicts in life. And um, the Lord is calling me not to be stingy. Not to be stingy with my love, 
my generosity, my trust in him, always my trust in him. So as you can see, these four fragments, read one after another, related one after another, with a little fragment from the preface of the book, all of this points to the conversion of I God, the conversion of a selfish, egocentric way of being in the world. And that's the point of life, the meaning of life revealed to us by Jesus. He's come to save us. He's come to set us free from ourselves. He's come to usher in an exodus of the self from itself toward the other and radical love and responsibility for the other person who faces me. The meaning of life revealed to us in Christ, the essence of salvation. So when we share personal testimony, this autobiographical and amnestic kind of way, we let our stories intermingle with that of Christ, the saving story. The centerpiece of salvation history, as Pope St. John Paul II says in his first encyclical, Redemptor Ominis, Jesus Christ is the center of the universe and of history. So we must let our life stories intermingle with the abundance of life in his. Altogether, then, may we recognize the power of personal testimony within Christian evangelization in relating all the ways the Lord has been at work in our lives since the beginning and up until now. Because when we let the saturating totality of our fragmented lives intersect and inter intermingle, even by way of fragments, with the healing whole of the life of Christ, we find ourselves caught once again in the saving net of divine grace. Thank you for joining me on the Catholic Fragments podcast, where you are equipped to think toward the whole, to pray from the heart, and to live as a witness 